ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердце нашей земле. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you like this podcast and want to help support it, please go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org and hit that Patreon button to join the Table of Ranks. William C. Bullitt, the first American ambassador to the Soviet Union, is virtually forgotten today. But Alexander Etkin's new intellectual biography of Bullitt makes a good case that he should be considered one of the most important diplomats in U.S.-Soviet relations. Bullitt also had a fascinating career and had personal relationships with many luminaries of the 1920s and 1930s, Sigmund Freud, John Reed, Lenin, Stalin, Mikhail Bulgakov, and others. So what was Bullitt's contribution, and how could have the world been different if some of his advice had been followed? Alexander Etkin is the Mikhail M. Bakhtin Professor of History of Russia-Europe Relations at the European University Institute, and an editor, author, and co-author of an eclectic list of books, including Warth Memory, Stories of the Undead and the Land of the Unburied, Internal Colonization, Russia's Imperial Experience, and Eros of the Impossible, The History of Psychoanalysis in Russia. His most recent book is Roads Not Taken, an Intellectual Biography of William C. Bullitt, published by Pittsburgh University Press. Also, a point of full disclosure, I recently published a review of Roads Not Taken alongside Michael McFall's new book, From Cold War to Hot Peace, in book form. You can find a link to the review on the post for this episode on the podcast website. Here's Alexander Etkind. So uh, when I saw your book, um, I, I heard about it at, at the University of Pittsburgh, and uh, Jonathan Harris actually it was the first one to tell me that your book was coming out and he said it was really he reviewed the manuscript and said it was really great so when I actually got a copy I was really excited but you know I actually hadn't really heard much or anything about William C. Bullitt as the first ambassador of Russia and how influential he was so what inspired you to write a book about him? Well I, he has been a, a subject of my interest for very very long I um talked about him in my first book, uh, Errors of the Impossible, uh, The History of Psychoanalysis in Russia, which was published about uh, 20 years ago. And there was a chapter about Bullitt and Bulgakov and Freud, uh, because Bullitt uh, had a very important and uh, very unusual for an American diplomat uh, psychoanalytic connection. So since then I kept thinking about him and um, and thinking, and uh, then I think in uh, the life of uh, many historians, uh, there is a stage when one wants to write a biography. I, I'm not sure that you <laughs> you know the feeling, but or m- maybe you do. So uh, I had such a kind of, uh, but also I had a commission to write a biography for a Russian publisher, 
which is a kind of interesting story by itself. It's a major publisher that uh, that publishes the book series called "Жизнь замечательных людей: The Life of of Outstanding Personalities." Uh, very like re remarkable people. Remarkable people, exactly. Uh, it's you know it was established in the first years of uh, the Soviet Union and uh, was continuously illuminating these lives of remarkable people. So they they commissioned me to write a biography uh, of Bullet. I mean of someone, and I said okay, I will write Bullet. And then uh, when I actually finished it, they refused to publish it. So I published it with a different publisher in Moscow. Uh, which was like two years ago, and uh, then uh, rewrote the book in English. So now we have, uh, and that was of course my um, intention from the start. So this is this is a kind of business um, side of the story. So who was he? Who was William Bullitt? And and why do you consider him so important as a subject for a biography? Okay, he he was a diplomat. He was a journalist and a writer and author. Uh, he was a kind of free-minded intellectual. He was someone who uh, lived through the 20th century. Uh, he was also a so socialite and knew pretty closely uh, uh, an amazing assortment of uh, remarkable people, from um, you know from Lenin to Roosevelt, or from Woodrow Wilson to uh, some Nazi leaders to the Chinese leaders, etc. And he, he kind of he collected uh, this kind of uh, high uh, uh, connections, uh, mostly political connections. But he was also he had also very important and very unusual intellectual interests. One of them was particularly important for me. Uh, that was his friendship with Sigmund Freud, and he, and he, he wrote. Together, Freud and Bullitt wrote together a remarkable book, which was actually the first psychobiography ever written, which was the biography, a biography of Woodrow Wilson. And they didn't publish it for very, very long. Uh, that's a kind of interesting story. So, so he combined all these unusual qualities, features, which I think was, uh, you know, remarkable uh, for um, for an, an American statesman. So he was the first. American ambassador to the Soviet Union, that was from 1933 to 1936, and then he was the ambassador, the American ambassador to France. And um, his role in France on the eve of the uh, World War II was was also hugely important and underappreciated. But when I when I started studying him and I studied his archive that he donated uh, before he died to. To his home university, to Yale, to the Sterling Library at Yale. So this, uh, his his papers are there in a perfect order, maybe too too perfect because he obviously purged the archive, you know, and while he was um, collecting his papers and uh, putting them in order and donating them. But the, the archive was uh, still is very rich. It's huge, you know, well, well more than one hundred of boxes, and. Uh, it, Compiles it features all kind of strange genres, uh, you know, unpublished and, and one unpublished novel, several unpublished, and several unpublished plays, but also of course, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of items of diplomatic correspondence and personal correspondence as well, and uh, all kind of uh, projects that he sent uh, either as personal letters or in a more official way to various branches of American administration, you know, 
over about 50 years of his activities. And many of these projects actually are quite striking. So I was truly surprised by his ability to be on the right side of history, as I put it, uh, while um, so many others, including uh, in the most situations those who were in power, were deeply mistaken about the events to come. He had a kind of philosophy that he expressed, say, in his letters to Roosevelt. He formulated this idea that a true politician, a great politician, is someone who, who sees the future. It's not enough to understand the present, he said, but the real wisdom is about you know, seeing the future and responding to the future challenges and things like that. And I should say that in, in, in many cases, sometimes he was deeply wrong, in many, many cases, he was strangely right. And this uh, is a kind of interesting situation, uh, entirely underappreciated. Uh, because, you know, he's not an unknown figure. You, I, I'm glad that you have never heard about him. That makes, I think, my book more interesting to you. But he's regularly mentioned in, you know, both in diplomatic histories and uh, Soviet histories. I mean, he's, it's not a discovery that there was such a, you know, he was the ambassador. But he's usually uh, perceived as a kind of, of ambitious figure who had great connections but accomplished nothing. In, indeed, he didn't accomplish much in terms of the actual uh, you know, policy um, decisions. But th th I think this is, a, this is exactly what, what is interesting, what is a problem and what is the subject. This, uh, you know, ability to produce the right decisions, the right advices, which had not become policy decisions, but still are valuable, important. And as I entitled the, this book, the roads that were not taken. That, that's, that's what I found really interesting about reading the book, too, of how many points where he had a really important intervention uh, and and really took a lot of risks in putting forward that intervention because a lot of cases it went against the grain, and in a lot of cases it wasn't accepted. But if you you know think of history in retrospect, it it's interesting to at least think about like what if Bullet was actually listened to at the time where things might have gone for the twentieth century. Um, but before we get to some of that, I want you to you, you mentioned that he had so many personal connections and and the amount of people he had really close connections to is really incredible. I mean, you mentioned Sigmund Freud, John Reed, Mikhail Bulgakov, um, you know, Woodrow Wilson, FDR, George Kennan, all of these big, you know, names. Um, and so talk about the, the influence of all of these people on his intellectual development, because as your book is, subtitle is, this is an intellectual biography of him. It's a good question, but actually I would reverse it, because for most of these people, he exerted a defining influence. Uh, say, on George Kennan uh, would be just nobody. Um, he, was, he was a you know, a junior kind of student in, uh, whatever, in, uh, in, in Riga, uh, studying Russian language uh, when Bullet uh, picked him and made him a junior diplomat in, the, uh, in his embassy. 
So, you know, once again, I mean, uh, 20th century could have been different if, if bullet, uh, if some of bullets advices, we will talk about that would be implemented, but also individual biographies, individual lives uh, of some very important people would be truly different. So who actually was an, uh, influential for, for bullet, who exerted uh, much influence was John Reed. And that's a big uh, theme of my book that even though they were roughly uh, peers, Reed was way more famous, more successful, more radical, and somehow became a kind of cult figure for Bullet and for, for his milieu. And uh, also his romantic death in uh, Moscow uh, while fighting for the, for the you know, happiness of humanity in very difficult conditions. That was, uh, that was all very, very impressive, not only for Bullet, but for the you know, millions of uh, the readers of uh, John Reed, etc. So Bullet married his uh, widow and uh, worshipped his, his memory for through decades. And that's, that was, and, but also he kind of fought with his uh, authority uh, in a kind of edible way, and that's kind of interesting. And another, another defining figure, of course, uh, was Sigmund Freud. That was in the middle, mid-twenties, that Bullet read his stuff, and he tried to heal his wife, the, that widow of John Reed, Louisa Bryant, who was an outstanding personality by herself, a leading feminist and a socialist journalist of the, of the time. She was also an alcoholic and, and very difficult personality. So, uh, so Bullet tried unsuccessfully to bring her to Freud. And I managed to find a very you know, interesting and sometimes touching correspondence between the three. She, she never showed up, but Freud was waiting and you know, rescheduling his appointments, etc. And uh, then Bullet started taking this uh, treatment himself for a while, but but they, they actually very soon they became uh, friends and moreover, and that happened to Freud uh, from time to time that his patients became turned, turned into friends. But it never happened that uh, they turned into co-authors. So Bullet was, a, Bullet was absolutely exceptional in this respect as well. And uh, of course a close reading of this Freud and Bullet uh, book, along with the reading uh, of his, no, his no, novels, Provided a lot of material for you know for my speculations in my book. So the the title of your your book, as you mentioned, you know, roads not taken. You know, you know, in the book, a few points in which if things you know, and we've mentioned this, worked out bullets way, perhaps the history of the twentieth century would have been fundamentally different. So w talk about a couple of these important points where bullet um, bullets advice could have really made a difference in in the course of history. Well, the most remarkable advice was one of the uh, first that he gave. And that was connected to his role in the Paris Peace Conference in uh, 1918. He was a junior diplomat and a member of the American delegation to Paris. And, you know, that was the conference that had to, uh, and actually did, end the First World War. And uh, the American delegation was determined to, you know, end, end war as such, so that there would be never war. But actually, there were a, a war or many wars were continuing on the territory of the former Russian Empire. 
So they wanted to do something, or at least to learn something about the situation, and they sent Bullitt um, as, the, as, as the head of a small uh, delegation or mission to the Bolshevik Russia. So uh, Bullitt went there uh, and uh, talked to the, to the top people, to Lenin and several else, to Chechen, to Litvinov, the top Bolshevik diplomats responsible for foreign relations. And they came to, and that was the, that's important to understand that that was just, that was, it just happened. So it was the moment, that was the, the moment of the civil war um, in Russia, that was the more, that was the most difficult for um, for the Bolsheviks. So uh, they, they came to a standing decision, uh, which uh, which all parts agreed with, that uh, the former former Russian Empire would be dismembered, would be divided into twenty three uh, independent uh, states. Uh, according to the warlords or military leaders uh, who, con who controlled with the armies uh, the territories. So uh, that the Bolsheviks agreed to keep control over eight gubernias around Moscow. So that also, all, this, all, all Siberia, the Urals, the Caucasus uh, and much else would just go. And they would keep control of, you know, on the slums from Moscow to Petrograd to the Baltic Sea. Uh, while 22 uh, other states, uh, along with the Bolsheviks, uh, would be recognized internationally by the Allied powers, by the victor victors of the war. And they therefore would, would get international recognition and uh, would start some kind of peace process. Um, that was uh, that happened after the uh, Brest-Litovsk peace was signed. So, uh, so Ukraine, for instance, was already independent. Finland was already independent. So that was not that big, but it was st still it was tremendous, of course. And uh, if it happens, so just imagine, you know, so all these parts of, of the former Russian Empire, of course, they had their uh, diverse connections or relations to different uh, foreign powers. Southern Russia was subsidized by the French. Some other, some other, some other military powers were uh, financed by England, by, by, by the United States, by Japan. Imagine independent Siberia. You know that would be that would be obviously connected to Japan, who was still an ally of the United States. So um, that could uh, indeed come to an entirely different, uh, you know, economic and political uh, development through the 1920s and 30s and etc. And uh, you know what would have happened to uh, to the Caucasus, to Ukraine, to Germany, which was heavily involved in Ukraine. So all these, you know, imperialist aims of the First World War would actually be satisfied in a positive way so that, for instance, Japan would be able to invest its huge resources, its huge capitals into Siberia with its huge natural resources, etc. So instead of, you know, dividing and redividing the world and uh, having this, uh, you know, post-Versailles uh, revenge uh, sentiments and, and, you know, the, the develop unexpected but very logical developments, in Germany or in Japan, developments that some intellectuals uh, such as Bullitt himself predicted after the Versailles Treaty 
or John Maynard Keynes, who was Bullitt's uh, kind of friend and interlocutor in, in Paris. So instead of all that, you know, that would be a different, entirely different um, economic and uh, political and uh, geopolitical situation that could possibly avert many horrible uh, events that uh, happened in the 20th century that triggered the Second World War, etc. Would it, would it actually happen? Of course, we can imagine that the Bolsheviks would not be happy, wouldn't be satisfied with this being locked in this eight um, gubernias of uh, central and northern Russia. Um, they, 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 they wouldn't have even the, uh, the White Sea because uh, it, it would also go like Arkhangel or this uh, old trade stations. Yeah, Bolshevik Russia would have been the size of uh, Russia under Ivan Grozny. Yeah, um, actually, this is what Bullitt said, but actually, it would be even smaller because, yeah, say because of this Arkhangelsk thing. So the Bolsheviks, of course, they, it's possible that they would be would tend to be even more radical, even more aggressive. So they would try to get uh, back some of, you know, their losses, uh, some of the territories that they believed were kind of by the power of tradition or history uh, belonged to them. There would be no revenge feelings in, in uh, Germany, but maybe there would be revenge feelings in, in, uh, in the Bolshevik Russia. We, we don't know that, but we, we could only speculate about, you know, this alternative scenarios of history. But what we do know, of course, is that, um, is the fact that Bullets um, plan was not accepted and it was not even listened to and the reason was entirely con contingent. So what happened was that when uh, Bullet returned from Moscow, he uh, sent you know telegrams from every port where he, he ch changed the military ship uh, uh, to Paris so that he would prepare uh, the American delegation for the sensational development that he was bringing, and he, he would understood the the scale of his initiative uh, very well. And um, there was a business breakfast arranged with Woodrow Wilson, so that Wilson would listen to this new proposal. And some, some very important uh, people, such as Edward House, who kind of coordinated foreign politics in general and the decisions of the uh, American delegation in Paris in particular. So they, they, he, Edward House was actually looked at this plan very positively. But what happened was that Wilson, Wilson had a stroke that very night. So, so breakfast didn't happen. Nothing actually happened. The, all the negotiations were suspended for a while. That was a very difficult, um, kind of critical situation in the whole uh, you know, peace conference. So nobody was, um, everyone was trying just to finish it and to, to sign the, the you know, peace treaty. And nobody was thinking about Russia or about Bullet. And, um, and, and Bullet uh, did something which I think was uh, deeply dignified and I think was entirely misinterpreted by the historians who was writing about that later. But, but George Kennan, George Kennan actually in his history uh, gave full credit to Bullitt. So um, Bullitt uh, uh, resigned um, and signed a, and sent a very aggressive, just 
furiously uh, formulated letter to to Wilson himself and made it all public. And uh, you know, you know, if, if you can afford it, you know, this is what you have to do. What, what this is this is what people what you should do. And then he was uh, unemployed. You know, his career, his career you know, was broken. Uh, everyone believed it was forever because the whole thing was a scandal. Was so he uh, approached um, FDR, and uh, using his charms, he became indispensable as the Russian expert or the connoisseur and uh, an expert in the Soviet Union. The, the, uh, the Russia handers, you know. Uh, because for FDR, uh, the, uh, establishing the new relations with the Soviet Union was one of his programmatic ideas. Because there were no diplomatic relations since the revolution. And FDR wanted to establish them. And uh, he needed someone who had some kind of knowledge of uh, the Soviet Union, of Russian politics, of the Bolsheviks. And um, it happened so that it was bullet. And bullet did have an expertise. He knew important personalities. He followed the developments of socialist or later Bolshevik ideology for decades. He did not speak Russian. He started studying Russian while he was in Moscow. He, he, he didn't succeed. But he spoke, he spoke French and German uh, very, very fluently. Both were his kind of working languages, and uh, so he could contact, uh, connect with the uh, you know, Bolshevik. You know, he claimed his friendship with Lenin. He made uh, FDR believe that his experience in the Bolshevik Russia was kind of unique and valuable, and it was. And actually, when he uh, did come to the, Bolshe to the Bolshevik Moscow as the American ambassador, he was greeted with huge enthusiasm precisely because, as uh, you know, the Pravda and uh, other Soviet newspapers wrote, he was the American friend of Lenin. It's, it seemed like Bullet was really good about this, uh, and his, he was a really good personal uh, maneuverer. He was a, it sounds like he had a lot of charm about him in terms of his interactions with a lot of these big players. And that's that's one of the, the the one of the fascinating things about your book is that it really is a, a wonderful social history of sorts of of how these you know people like Bullet and all of the the bachelors that he hired for the embassy in Moscow and what what kind of a social history of uh, life in Moscow as a diplomat. So, what was the embassy like life for these guys in Moscow in Soviet Russia in the early nineteen thirties? Yeah, so they um, uh, they had to start, you know, from scratch. They had nothing. They had no home, no 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 building for the embassy, nothing. Uh, but uh, Stalin himself and uh, other Bolshevik uh, bonzas, they were very hospitable and they threw parties and uh, bullet road and uh, to Roosevelt, um, and that was still the you know the time that was the time of prohib prohibition. In America, so that he, he wrote that you know that was the best wine that best French wine basically on the tables that you, you could imagine and caviar and all that and uh, that's that was you know long list of uh, you know these delicacies that he could uh, eat and drink on on these tables of together with people like Varashilov, Obudion, etc., uh, or Bukharin. 
And many of these people who were his interlocutors and, uh, and the people with whom he drank and socialized and played polo. He, for instance, he introduced the Soviet cavalry to the American style polo, you know, p p play, playing this, you know, game, uh, team game uh, on, on horses. And, uh, and, uh, the, and he convinced Budzioni, who was the uh, legendary commander of uh, the, the chief of the cavalry. That's the best possible training for the, you know, for the cavalry officers. So uh, they, they pl pl play this horse, horse uh, polar using like some kind of Siberian ponies, uh, which were of exceptional quality uh, as well as road. So, so, the, so life had its uh, fun size. And um, for security reasons, so all, all these people were required to, to come with, with, without their families, uh, wives or children. And most of them were actual bachelors because of this reasoning. Or some, like George Cannon, he was married, to, his wife was actually Norwegian. So he left <laughs> wife, you know, in Norway. Uh, but they, they, that was a, you know, big group of American, young, pretty young, um, all of them were you know, uh, old boys highs were younger than uh, he, he was, and he was all still, still uh, pretty young. So they entertained themselves as much as they could, and um, they uh, socialized with the Bolshevik intellectuals. So, you know, say Bukharin was a frequent guest of the embassy because you know, the, the, or people such as like Karl Radek, for instance. You know, that was this cosmopolitan. Uh, pretty well-educated or self-educated intellectuals of very radical beliefs, but some of these, so many of these Americans in the embassy were also, you know, radicals to to to, to different extent, with some socialist past. So they, they socialized with ballerinas from the Bolshoi Theater, and with intellectuals, and with politicians, and uh, with cultural figures and they believe that that was their mission you know to establishing this cultural contacts and uh, uh, that was uh, actually it was their mission probably it doesn't work anymore nowadays but it definitely was one of the functions of the proclaimed functions of this international diplomacy their life there their social life there is it's it sounds like something out of another world in many respects you know considering that uh, 20 years later, the, the Soviet Union and, and the United States would be, you know, in the Cold War and kind of mortal enemies. Um, but, you know, one of the, the more, you know, really colorful chapters of your book is is titled The Theater of Diplomacy, which includes this ma amazing episode of the Spring Festival in March 1935. And it's significant because it also comes about three and a half months or four months after this, the, the murder of uh, Sergei Kirov. Um, so, talk about this this elaborate ball and and its significance. Yeah, it's uh, it's a, it was a stunning event, and Bullet really wanted to do it the best uh, feast, uh, the, the best uh, ball that Moscow uh, would have uh, uh, since the revolution, uh, and uh, and and he succeeded. So the you know there were everyone. Uh, who was anything in Moscow but Stalin, but Stalin of course was also invited, he didn't come. But everyone else came, there were, you know, people, people, commissars, there were the marshals of the, you know, Red Army, there were. But 
that, that was, uh, you know, uh, Tairov, who was uh, even then uh, already a pretty famous uh, theater director, and uh, he had some experience with Americans because uh, I think he, he had some uh, tours in America at that point. So he oversaw the lighting effects, so that they had kind of huge screens and uh, projectors and all kind of uh, uh, illumination, uh, which changed in the process, etc., which was stunning for the for those people then. But also they brought animals from the Moscow Zoo some seals and some goats and some birds and these birds had to fly and they did fly but some of them landed into a pate or something so so there were all kinds of uh, funny things including the so so what happened uh, was that there were cub uh, bears uh, little bears and uh, you know this uh, ladies um, because all these bolsheviks uh, were there with their wives including Litvinov's wife, who was actually English. And uh, she, she, she fell in love with this cabbear, uh, so she nursed him and nursed him. And then and, and this, and there were little bottles uh, with milk. And uh, uh, what is the right word? Pimps, I think, for the, for the bottle, so that the, the bear would suck. And uh, Radek, who was famous for his wit, so he changed this bottle, uh, poured champagne into the, you know, he, he changed milk for champagne, so that this little bear drank some champagne and then vomited onto Marshal Yegorov, who was the uh, <laughs> chief chief of state, like the, uh, the, the, the biggest uh, commander of the Red Army. Yegorov, who had his uniform uh, all vomited by the bear, and that was his cabinet and but what what's way what is way more interesting than these picturesque details, of course, is that it did happen after after Kirov's assassination, and and already the first wave of terror of Stalinist terror was very much uh, in place, and the American diplomats were, were well aware of the situation. And Cannon, uh, you know, walking on the bullet, he wrote very eloquent, very detailed dispatches about the actual, the actual terror, you know, who is arrested, why, you know, how unfair it was, what will happen next. And indeed, many, many of the participants of this particular ball were, in fact, were arrested like in a few weeks or a few months or a few years after this ball. So it was a very sort of, uh, very very special, very vicious uh, event, in fact. No, it's it's an amazing story. And and the other thing about it, too, is that you, you argue that it became the inspiration for uh, Bulgakov's Staten's Ball in the Master and Margarita. Yeah, that's, uh, that's I think, is, you know, a remarkable example for, you know, for, for a historical uh, reading of a literary text. Because the Master and Margarita, we of course all know it, and it looks like a, you know unbridled fantasy, just you know, just just about you know about Jesus Christ and about uh, Satan and about uh, Moscow in this entirely random uh, but very expressive combination. The the fact is uh, that I think is barely known, but. It, but very instructive that uh, Bullet and Bulgakov they became really close friends uh, while Bullet was in Moscow. And they, they uh, you know, 
went to, they visited each other with their families. Uh, I mean, Bullet was um, a bachelor, but he, had, he was in Moscow with his daughter, teenage daughter. And Bulgakov had a wife who was writing detailed diaries of their visits and, uh, you know, meals eaten during these visits and, you know, uh, kind of costumes that men and women wear. So we, we know a lot about Bullet and his entourage uh, from Elena Sergeyevna Bulgakova from her diaries. Because uh, at, some po at some point they saw each other almost daily or weekly. There were also some breaks, Bullet left for, for the States at some point, and then, you know, what was also hugely important, of course, was that the Bulgakovs were trying to emigrate. And in fact, they, and so they applied for the, for the passports, which would work like exit visas, essentially, like for, they applied for, 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 Bolsh for, the, for the Bolshevik or personally for Stalin's permit to leave for France. And they were denied, so they were actually in the situation of, ref of the refuseniks. So, and, the, and all this experience, so this is like, he, and Bulgakov was deeply, deeply sick in all kinds of ways, you know, physically and also psychically. He was treated by a hypnotist uh, in the moment, and then, and all this experience, so he was a, he was a refusenik, he was writing this fantastic novel, and he was under um, political disgrace or actual persecution. He was an, under, an, under imminent threat of uh, arrest. And he was a personal, a pretty close friend of the American ambassador in the Soviet Union, which of course was, you know, it would be huge now. It was even more then, even more unique or, you know, exceptional. And of course, Bulgakov hoped that Bullet would somehow help him to emigrate. I don't know, you know, did Bullet, uh, you know, give some reasons for this hope, but Bullet introduced, say, Bulgakov to other ambassadors, to, to French ambassador, Turkish ambassador. This is, that was documented. So they spent hours and hours, you know, together with, you know, other people or tete-a-tete. Uh, -tete. So it's difficult, actually, to imagine that Bullet, Bullet read Bulgakov's play the days of, of the turbines uh, five times. It was translated into English, so it, he, he read it several times and attended several uh, several performances. So Bullet really demonstrated his uh, devotion or his respect to this disgraced author. So all, all these experiences are there in the Master and Margarita. And that's, I found it very interesting. It, it is. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. So... What's also what's interesting about Bullet? So he he leaves his ambassadorship in 1936 and is transferred to France. Um, and at the beginning, it it seemed in the 1920s he seemed to have some sympathies with the Soviet Union. But by the time he leaves, he he's a, a you know he's quickly becoming a, a hardened Cold Warrior. I think you know a Cold Warrior before there were any cold, other Cold Warriors. It seems. Um, so how did he view the Soviet Union and how did it change over time, his views change over time? But, you know, you know there was also the war in between and, uh, and Boris's position there was, you know, very dramatic. So he had some, you know, some high commissions from the wartime administration, went to the Near East as the, the American representative. But then he obviously had very high ambitions to become, to be the 
Secretary of State or Secretary of War, uh, nothing happened. And he actually volunteered to, and to, to join the French army. And the goal, so that was, you know, the, the army that heroically fought the, the Nazi, was understaffed and all that, and so the goal made him um, a major, a major of the French uh, army, uh, and the uh, bullet spent about, uh, about a year, you know, on the field of the war and took part in some, you know, very heroic actions of this French army. And that, that's, of course, is also an absolutely unique situation in which the former Ambassador, you know, the high, high official uh, of a great power would become a field officer of the army of the receiving state of France. So he was, he was the ambassador of France, he became a French, uh, you know, officer. Uh, yes, and so that, that was all, you know, all formative experiences and Bullet had, you know, a lot of that. And um, then the war ended and um, he got nothing. He, he, he was increasingly bitter. He, he was writing for the Life magazine. He, he became a kind of uh, newly, because, um, because he, he started his career before he became a dip diplomat. He, he was a journalist and now he, he returned to that profession. He, he wrote very extensive uh, uh, and very bitter analytic uh, reports and reviews about the American policy in Europe, in China, in India, uh, but still he was kind of obsessed with the Soviet Union because, because it was, you know, it was uh, interfering or meddling everywhere. And uh, Bullet was uh, you know, one of those who indicated that and demanded more action political action, diplomatic action, or military action in some uh, cases. He, he wrote a book in which he analyzed, the, I mean, he predicted imminent development of the nuclear bomb by the Soviet Union and uh, sort of analyzed this new situation in which the two superpowers have the superweapons. And uh, that, that book was, uh, it was not as much as prophetic as some of his earlier, um, analysis, but it 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 was it was very, it was valid. Yeah. And and he was an early advocate of the European Union. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he kept writing and writing, and you know, to, and also talking to important people. And uh, you know, he, he he was probably he was more productive in his oral performances, like you know, when he was chatting uh, over the over a dinner table. And he was a, a he was a great host, and he, the French like while, while he was in the French army, so he, he was responsible for the wine cellar of one important French general. So the French uh, uh, trusted this American, uh, you know, uh, uh, with French wine uh, taste. So so he he was very convincing, I think. So of course, but of course it's very difficult to assess, you know, his. Uh, advices, you know, over the table, but uh, so we, we, we should rely on his text. But uh, in one of the chapters, uh, I uh, analyze his uh, developing uh, more and more articulate arguments for the European Union and arguments that were not economic, as they were, say, in Keynes or some other, you know, authorities of the time, or Monet. 
Jean Monnet, by the way, one of the founders of the European Union, was also Bullitt's protege and, uh, you know, just hand-picked, uh, you know, guy who was pretty much nobody but, and became a very important uh, statesman due to Bullitt. But uh, Bullitt's arguments were purely political and strategic and, uh, you know, military, that uh, only together, and also including Germany and England as well, but, but he emphasized the union between France and Germany and Poland, Belgium, you know, this, uh, the, this union within uh, Western Europe, so only together this potential union would uh, be able to take part in the world politics and to confront the Soviet Union and also to help the United States or to balance or to triangulate this uh, Cold War era relation. And finally, you know, when we think of, of diplomats who defined U.S.-Russia relations, you know, we automatically, of course, think of George F. Kennan, who's a protege of Bullitt. And, and you make a really good case, I think, um, that Bullitt um, is as significant and even in some cases more significant than George Kennan in those early years of the 20s and into the 30s and even into the 40s. So, so how do you understand Bullitt's legacy over American diplomacy? Well, uh, that's, yeah, that's you know, a, a crucial question. And um, one, and the, I think there are two, two responses. One response would, that I could produce, and I think I did produce it in my book, is a kind of, of a tragic variety that he was you know, unheard prophet. And he's interesting because of his advice or projects that uh, have never been implemented, even though if they had, our world would have been different and perhaps a better place to. So that's a kind of tragic response. Uh, another way is more pragmatic that indeed, uh, not so much because of his text, but prob probably more, more because of his personal influence, he did shape some very important uh, figures in American politics who defined the relations with the Soviet Union and the, 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 the start of the Cold War there, and also the, how it, uh, in fact, how it developed. And George Kennan and some other personalities, uh, uh, they really started under Bullitt in the Moscow Embassy and uh, got their formative experience, you know, in, in, you know, d while discussing Stalin with Bullet. So basically this, this is what, what, what conceived George Kennan as an intellectual and, uh, and a statesman. That was Alexander Etkind, the Mikhail M. Bakhtin Professor of History of Russia-Europe Relations at the European University Institute and the editor, author, and co-author of an eclectic list of books, including Warped Morning, Stories of the Undead in the Land of the Unburied, Internal Colonization, Russia's Imperial Experience, and Eros of the Impossible, The History of Psychoanalysis in Russia. His most recent book is Roads Not Taken, an intellectual biography of William C. Bullitt, published by Pittsburgh University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, 
Please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye!